This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm pleased now to introduce our second speaker, Michael Roberts, who brings expertise in a broad range of legal and policy issues from farm to fork in local, national, and global food su supply systems. He's founding director of the newly established Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at the UCLA School of Law, and he's author of a recent book, Food Law in the United States, uh, which is published by Cambridge University Press, and co-editor of Food Law and Policy, a, a new case book. He's also involved in teaching. Uh, he developed a graduate food studies course and also in affecting change as uh, a member of the Los Angeles Food Pol Policy Council's Leadership Board, and he chairs the Los Angeles Garden School Foundation. Please join me in welcoming Michael Roberts. All right, it's very nice to uh, be with you t here today, and uh, we just, uh, I congratulate the uh, organizers of this conference. We just had our third annual UCLA Harvard Food Law Conference on Friday. And uh, it reminds me how difficult it is to pull these things together. <laughs> so I have, I'm, gl I'm glad to be here and just be a spectator as well as a participant, even in a, lim in a limited way. Um, our first conference uh, two years ago, three years ago at UCLA, uh, David Kessler was our keynote speaker. Uh, our conference was uh, on transparency. Last year in Cambridge, we had a conference on um, on, on the use of antibiotics in the animal feed system. And Friday, we actually uh, had a conference uh, on food marketing to children. So uh, uh, C-SPAN actually showed up and uh, taped the conference. And I'm, uh, we were fortunate to have uh, Senator Tom Harkin as our, as our keynote speaker, who used to chair the uh, uh, the Health and Human Services Committee in the U.S. Senate uh, before he retired from the Senate. Uh, we also were fortunate to have Kelly Brownell um, speak as in the morning and set the conference up very nicely for us. Our uh, program at UCLA is an interesting program, uh, the first of its kind with a focus on public health and food. Uh, and if it's any indication as to the interest of, this, of these issues, when our first class that was offered at uh, UCLA, we attracted a, a, at the most 10 students. We now have upwards to 45 students uh, in the class. Uh, we also have a new food law clinic that's serving live policy clients. And it's been really interesting to see the, the, the range of student interest uh, in food law issues, uh, especially those uh, focused on, uh, as I mentioned, public health. One of the, uh, the, the, the theme at our marketing conference, and I want to mention it because it ties very nicely into this session as well as this conference, and in particular my, my uh, presentation, is the relationship between law, and, or excuse me, science, law, and policy. So at our conference we had three panels. Uh, we had scientists who looked at the, um, at the science of marketing of food to children and the implications and in various aspects of the science. We also had three legal scholars looking particularly at uh, First Amendment issues. 
uh, and looking at legal uh, solutions ranging from regulatory action from the FTC uh, as well as some other novel interesting ideas. And then finally we convened a panel of policy uh, specialists uh, who then took the science, married it with the law, and came up with recommendations with respect to policy. And I think this is really important, uh, that we, we create a science strategy that dovetails nicely into viable legal options that then uh, turns into um, sustainable policy um, objectives and policy rules that uh, can help affect real change. Uh, I also want to mention uh, just briefly, uh, and I put on the screen an article from Emily Aguirre, our fellow who's here from UCLA. She's a graduate of Harvard Law School. She wrote a, a recent article in a, in a uh, journal that I actually started years ago, Food Law and Policy, on the um, sugar policies in Europe uh, and dietary consequences. Uh, in addition, um, I've been teaching in China now for over a decade and uh, it's always an interesting experience. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that it's, these issues are the same everywhere, and, and it's interesting to see uh, the reaction of students in China um, as well as the reaction of students in uh, the U.S. as I travel around and lecturing on food law issues. Um, the, China, the China students are mostly interested in food safety but there's a growing recognition of the linkage between nutrition and, uh, and law and the problems in China of, of uh, a Western diet, quite frankly. Um, two years ago, I taught a class of about 200 China, uh, students from China in, in uh, Beijing, and they all had cans of Diet Coke uh, on their desk, and I thought that was interesting. Uh, my students in, at UCLA uh, if they're brave enough, they'll bring a diet, uh, a soda in class, and of course then they're singled out and we, we make fun of them and mock them. Um, and there's this uh, almost a purge effect. Uh, but the students in China were very surprised, uh, these law students, uh, at the effects of soda and sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, and uh, when I went the next year, I saw only half the students there with uh, soda on their desk. So it seems to, to make a difference. Um, I also recalled students becoming very surprised about 10 years ago when I assured them that not all the cool people in Hollywood and Beverly Hills hang out at McDonald's. Uh, so there are some really interesting cultural aspects to this, as well as uh, some interesting historical aspects. Uh, sometimes we think we're dealing with a new problem. I recall reading the words of Senator uh, Paddock back in the 19th century. Prior to the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, which was the first national act uh, regulating food in this country, when he said the devil has got hold of the food supply of this country. And that was in the, in the 1880s. Uh, so the uh, more things change, I suppose, the more they stay the same. Um, however, whether the devil's involved in the food supply or not, uh, we are in some interesting times. Headlines uh, with respect to the sugar industry, as we've already discussed today. Um, and it certainly um, uh, leads us, I think, into some interesting overarching questions that I'd like to now address. And what I want to do is set a framework and, and ask you to step back with me as we look at the role of law in engaging with science and affecting uh, policy change. 
And so these three questions that I'm going to ask deal with each stakeholder group, uh, namely policymakers, consumers, and the food industry, that kind of gets to the heart of, of, of much of the debate when it comes down to policy uh, with respect to uh, uh, legal proposals. So first, policymakers. The question is, what is the regulatory philosophy? And, and oftentimes this question pits a tension between personal responsibility and corporate responsibility. Now, some of this has to do with political philosophy, obviously, and one's view of the role of government. But it also has to do, uh, what I would submit, with one's view of food. I always tell my students, and there's a cultural aspect to this that I think we sometimes overlook. What we think of food oftentimes dictates what we think of policies that regulate food. Um, and and I, think that's, I think that's important. Whether we think of food as a commodity is very different than if we think of food as something cultural that we eat, that we enjoy, that we communicate with, that we share with loved ones and friends and family. Now, with respect to science and law and policy, two examples come to mind um, with res uh, regarding food, the philosophy of food regulation. At our conference at UCLA the other day, uh, we addressed the issue of, of the FTC and its jurisdiction over the advertise, regulating the advertising of food. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was a regulatory reaction to the attempt by the FTC to regulate television advertising of junk food or sugar, sh uh, sugary food that led to what was called KidVid. And in 19, it led uh, to a, a very interesting reaction by the public. The Washington Post, in fact, published a very, very stinging rebuke to the attempts by the FTC to regulate food using that very familiar phrase of nanny state. I would dare say the Washington Post probably wouldn't write such an editorial today, but that was back in 1979 or 1980, and accusing the government of overextending itself. And, and, what it, and, and there were reactions all throughout the country, editorials uh, throughout the United States, that criticized the FTC for its attempts to regulate uh, sugary food and, and junk food uh, that was the marketing of these foods to children. And what it ended up happening in 1980 is the FTC got its wings clipped. And it ended up having, uh, it was unable at that point to regulate food under what's called, if, if it's unfair, which is a, a pretty significant a weapon for the FTC to use in battling advertising to children. And it's interesting to think today that the FTC has less authority to regulate food um, advertising to children than it does for adults. And that's a, more of a historical accident born out of, these, of this KidVid uh, regulatory um, dis, uh, dispute. Now, Another uh, interesting uh, example is the Pelman versus McDonald's case. Uh, some of you may not remember this, but those of you who are older do. Uh, there was a class action litigation brought against McDonald's uh, years ago um, that accused McDonald's of causing the obesity of a young man living in New York City and other youth. And to make a long story short, this case created a, an uproar in the community. You couldn't turn on your radio without listening to 
people who were criticizing uh, the lawyers who brought this case, who were largely from the tobacco uh, industry litigation, and um, and as an attempt to, to to make money, and it led to what we called uh, cheeseburger bills, uh, which were actually state pass laws that were passed in states that forbid the litigation against fast food restaurants. The case never materialized. It actually lost in the class action certification uh, a few years ago, believe it or not. But it's an interesting example of of a an attempt to litigate where perhaps the the battle was lost, but maybe the war was won. In the, in the, to the extent that it brought, it illuminated uh, McDonald's advertising uh, practices and the failure of it to, to uh, showcase the nutrients accurately uh, in its restaurants. So uh, sometimes the question, for me at least, with respect to uh, regulatory philosophy is also one of timing. How much science do we need? How much causation do we need before we actually act? And I think that's a fundamental question of policy. Do we wait until we, we, sh we show with, with all the clarity in the world that sugar is addictive before we regulate sugar? And, and to what extent do we regulate? Um, second, uh, consumers. The question is, does a particular policy change consumer behavior? I don't think we ask this question enough. Uh, but it, and, and again, one problem with this question is it puts the onerous on the consumer rather than the industry, uh, which is not always fair and it's not necessarily good policy. But I think it's an important question to ask anyway. Certainly uh, with the uh, further evidence of addiction, uh, this changes the thinking about this question. Uh, but certainly with respect to labeling, uh, to taxes, uh, to uh, zoning uh, tools that are used to, to eradicate food deserts in, in low-income areas. Uh, all of these are legal tools that are currently being used, and it raises the question, how effective are they? Do they work? Do they change consumer behavior? So taxes, for example. What kinds of foods do we tax? How high does the tax need to be before we affect change? These are important questions uh, that help drive uh, effective policy. Uh, the third uh, stakeholder is uh, the food industry. And this question is, what works better, command or in control or self-regulation or voluntary regulation, which I submit is a misnomer to the extent that oftentimes companies who engage in voluntary self-regulation are doing so to stave off government regulation. For example, front-of-pack labeling uh, was first introduced into the UK. It, became pretty evident the FDA was interested in this concept in the United States. You saw the, the uh, Grocer Manufacturers Association and other uh, industry groups get into front of pack labeling with some pretty absurd results. Uh, and, and we now have uh, an FDA that hasn't really moved on this issue, largely perhaps because Walmart and a, lot of, and a number of other uh, private players have developed front of pack labeling that's a little more closely aligned to what the FDA envisioned in the first place. But it's a good example of how self-regulation works in countenance as well as a complement uh, to uh, uh, command and control regulation from the government. Um, let me just end by mentioning class action uh, litigation as a way to move industry. 
uh, there's over, California is affectionately known as the food court. Uh, well over 200 at one time class action lawsuits had been filed here in California, mostly on labeling issues. Um, some of which uh, had merit and some of which did not. But you take, for example, just as, a, as an example, the word natural, which was, at, 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 was, which was a subject of a lot of different litigation. Companies begin to ask themselves the question, not whether should we, should we take the word natural off our label, not because we think the FDA may send us a warning letter, or maybe because we're going to confuse consumers, or maybe it's lost its utility or its meaning, but the question was, are we going to be sued in a class action lawsuit? And so class action lawsuit litigation uh, is, a, is a nifty way to uh, change uh, industry behavior as well. Um, so these are all uh, interesting uh, questions that, that sort of set the framework for these uh, various legal responses and policy responses uh, to uh, food addiction, in particular to uh, sugar addiction. I will say this, that the law really can't move more quickly than the science. And, 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 and one, of the, one of the most fundamental principles of at least the modern legal system in the United States is that the law adapts to changing social conditions. And we've seen this evident in lots of different ways. Say, for example, the structure of, of marriage and families recently in this country. The law needs to adapt to the, the, the growing problem of obesity, uh, or whatever we call it, and, and to malnutrition. But the law also needs the science, and so, the, the, and so it's important that law and policy both are hinged upon science, and that's why I'm so happy to see scientists gather themselves together to talk about these important issues. We'll follow you, but we need you to hurry up a little bit if you don't mind. Uh, so thank you. Well, I, I think if I understood the question, that the added sugar per daily percentage, will, daily value percentage, will be required on food labels beginning in 2017. Um, so, on a daily value percentage, there is no nutritional requirement for sugar. Right. Right. So, is your question different than what we've just? Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not quite sure. I understand. You had a comment. She's asking about a percentage of daily value, uh, but there is no recommended daily right. for sugar. Right. And your question is whether or not we should require that? Yeah. There's a dietary limit. I, I, th I think that there's, the answer is there's still a lot of room for improvement. And, and, but, I mean, this took, what, 10, 20 years? Uh, after the first citizen's petition that was filed to get the FDA to move this far. Um, and, but there still certainly is room for improvement um, with respect to sugar on the label, including eliminating the 56 different kinds of sugar that one can list on an ingredient panel that confuses consumers. You ended by saying that, um, talking about how important, oh, sorry the um, role of science and policy. Um, and as Laura pointed out, we uh, now have clear evidence that um, the industry has corrupted nutrition science for a very long time in this country, well, internationally. So can you talk about um, uh, the role of industry in nutrition science and um, where we should be uh, 
either scientists and advocates as we move forward on this issue? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, when we talk about law as it applies to a particular problem, we deal with the issue of power. The, the law doesn't work in a vacuum. The, the people who have power make the laws. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I know you all know that, but it's a good reminder. And so, you know, what company has the most number of registered lobbyists the last time I checked? It's Coca-Cola. So the, the, the question of power becomes really, really important. And you just stack the deck even more when nutritionists at well-respected universities lose credibility uh, because of conflicts of interest or being, or being bought off. Uh, it's a really uh, difficult, difficult uh, thing to overcome. One really kind of simple solution in my mind would be, one, one thing we don't have here is we don't have the force of the medical profession behind all of this. And I had a conversation recently with the associate dean at UCLA Law School, and I asked the question, when are we gonna see nutrition on the medical boards? When will we see nutrition as a required course in medical school? Because we can fight these battles over at the law school, school of public, uh, public health, in school public policy and everywhere else that you folks come from. But until we get the medical profession behind us, and you need to get working on this, Robert, uh, we're, as you can see, I like passing on the blame. That's what we do in the law. But, <laughs> but, I, but I do think that, that we've got we've to we, we create a greater uh, a groundswell of folks who really can move the needle and people who talk to uh, consumers all the time. Yeah. I, I want to amplify what you just said by way of a story. I attended the American Diabetes Association meetings that were held in San Francisco a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. There were 18,000 people who came to that three-day international summit. They held a plenary session entitled Policy Approaches to the Diabetes Epidemic. They reserved two grand ballrooms. Dan Glantz was the featured speaker. There were three or four other workshops going on simultaneously, one on the care of the amputated diabetic, another one on new medications, et cetera. 18,000 attendees. 18 people came to Stan Glantz's talk. So your point about the profession, and it's not just the medical profession, this is pharmacy, nursing, yeah. physical therapy, et cetera, cannot be overstated. That is an absolute truism. Well, and, and again, there's, there's power and there's money involved in all of this, so right. it's a really hard conundrum to, to crack. All right, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.